In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Aaron, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Today is a special because this is our 10th episode, and for us, that's a pretty big milestone since we had no idea if anyone would even be interested in listening. So to make it this far and already have the community that we do, all we can really say is just a heartfelt thank you to everyone listening who has been part of this awesome journey with us. If you're just tuning in for the first time, you can find more episodes at feelinfilm.com and all of your major podcasting directories like iTunes, Stitcher, and other places like that. This week, we are feeling the classics and bringing you a review of Jaws. I'm excited about that. We are extremely ready to get into the conversation, but before we do, as always, we're going to talk about what we've been watching and consuming this week. And if you don't mind, Aaron, can I go first with this one? Yes, please do. Okay, so I'm really excited about this. Uh, In anticipation of this particular episode, I wanted to check out some films that had to do with like summer and surf and things like that because, of course, it is summer and we're reviewing Jaws. So it got me inspired to want to look at some some films. So I did a quick Google search and I love Google because it brings up a bunch of like posters of movies along with like quick synopses and – as I was scrolling through, I ran across an interesting name, Dogtown and Z-Boys. I mean, how <laughs> – what? <laughs> that is, that's just the weirdest name ever, right? Um, come to find out, and some of you listening may know about this, but it was a documentary that um, – I think it came out uh, – I actually don't remember. 2000, 2001, so a good while ago. But it's a documentary that really – in essence, what it's doing is it's showing the history of skateboarding, how it started back in the 1970s, how it declined a little bit in the 80s, and how it got its revival in the 90s into what we know of it today, like the X Games with half pipes and really crazy uh, skateboard stuff like that. But what it really does is focus specifically on a group of guys that are living in the Hollywood venice santa monica area but not like the real rich rich part and it's these surfers that hang out at a surf shop called zephyr sports or zephyr surf shop and what it is is it's a chrono it, it, it's a uh, a chronicle of their journey transitioning from surfing into skateboarding and forming this team and really just pioneering what we see today um, in our extreme skateboard sports. Um, I'm not a big skateboard fan. I'm, I, I know who Tony Hawk is because I played the PlayStation game once or twice. But I was really fascinated with just all of the nuances that went into how these guys emulated surfing early on in their styles. And to see how they that, that style that became popularized eventually led to them uh, getting sponsorships and ultimately breaking up the Zephyr team, but not necessarily their family. And so we get a whole bunch of just different uh, clips of them skating. So it's really cool. We get a lot of just montages of of old footage 
of, of their skateboard sessions. Um, the, the swimming pool skateboarding that I guess we see in a lot of movies about skateboarding, or at least I've seen in some, it came from these guys. These guys actually discovered it because there was a big drought in California at the time. And what they found was that pools were the, the, essentially the skateboard version of surf waves because of the amount of, of you know, height they could get, the amount of, of degree that they could go up and down. And I, you know, there was a lot that I loved about this documentary. But in, in a nutshell, the thing that I took away from most was just seeing these guys skate. Again, I'm not a skateboarder, so I couldn't appreciate this from the very beginning. But this documentary pulled me in. And by the end, I was just like, these guys are amazing. And to see how what we see today on the X Games, how it came to be from these simple days of guys just wanting to emulate surfers on concrete. It was just a, a mind-blowing and entertaining uh, just ride for me, and I couldn't recommend it more. So it's Dogtown and Z-Boys is the documentary. There was actually a movie that was based on these guys' lives called uh, Lords of Dogtown. Heath Ledger's in it. Uh, Emil Hirsch is in it. Um, I can't remember who else, but um, I've checked that out too. I actually enjoyed the, the documentary more, but the, the movie itself is pretty fun too. Interesting. Uh, when I saw this in the notes, I had no earthly idea what the heck you were going to be talking about. And I'm glad that you clarified what Z-Boys meant because that was my big question was, I was like, Dogtown and Z-Boys. I've heard of I've heard of Dogtown before, so that might tie into a movie somewhere. I, I'd forgotten it was about skating, but the Z-Boys was throwing me off. It sounded like there was going to be some sort of like zombie zombie thing there, but... Um, no, no such luck. I guess I don't get skateboarding zombies. Maybe you can find that and review it next week. <laughs> I'll do, I'll do my best to check it out and see if I can find something like that. That would be sweet or rad. We'll go back to the right era. Tubular, <laughs> tubular dude. <laughs> so what was not totally tubular, um, but was pretty rad. <laughs> Terrible segue. Um, <laughs> is uh, X-Men apocalypse. I got a chance to go see X-Men and it was not a show, uh, not a movie that we were going to review on feeling the feeling film, but um, I did have an opportunity to talk about the movie uh, with Mikey Fissel on his podcast, and that's called Real World Theology, and it's a little bit of a different slant, um, but it was it was a lot of fun, and it was just a great experience to be able to uh, go on another podcast as a guest. I didn't have to be the one driving the conversation. Um, even though you and I are, are very much a, a 50-50 partnership, um, we both put an equal amount into really the flow of our show and, and how it gets from topic to topic. And I didn't have to do that. And it was kind of refreshing to just be the guy that answered a question here and there. Um, but we had a good talk. So if you guys are interested in hearing thoughts on X-Men Apocalypse, you can look for that on the Real World Theology Podcast. That's everywhere you could possibly find us. You can find them. They have a really awesome website, great Facebook page, iTunes, Stitcher. You know the drill. Um, The other thing I wanted to talk about briefly was I got an opportunity on Friday night to introduce my kids to Independence Day for the first time. And I asked them after the movie, well, Actually, I didn't ask them. Somebody else asked them um, what their favorite part about the movie was. And they both, it was really funny because they both came up with the same single word. And I was going to ask you, Patrick, 
if you have any idea what one single word they might have used to describe Independence Day. Man, I have <laughs> I have no idea. Um uh I only know of catchphrases. Yeah, no. It's just one word. One word. Um I, I yeah, I'm stumped. They said explosions. That was their <laughs> that was their word. And you know, it's it's pretty fitting because Independence Day uh came out in oh gosh, I don't know. I think it was 96, 96 or 95. I think 96. So, it really set us off on this new path of destructive blockbuster films and there are a lot of explosions. I mean, everything in this movie is iconic. There's great dialogue. Um it it's hard not to remember things from this film once you've seen it the the white house getting blown up which you know feels like now that happens in every movie like four or five times each summer um but back then it didn't and it was pretty unique the kids loved it they had a great time i felt like it still holds up it is absolutely in my top 100 one of my favorite films ever i don't i can't look at the film and think about it in any kind of technical terms because I'm smiling, I'm laughing, I'm crying, I'm emotionally responding to it in every single scene. And, you know, for me, that's that's really what movies are all about. Um, it it kind of transports me into this, this different place where I get to go experience a story and I get to feel like I'm there. And the, the person that was uh, hosting the event we went to, his name is James Harleman. Yes, I'll quickly plug him. He's got a website and a book called Cinemagog, which is very, very interesting stuff. But he used a, the explanation that you know not all films have to have fully fleshed out characters because some movies need their characters to be a little bit of an open vessel that we can put ourselves into. We can project ourselves into these characters. So you can project yourself into the scientist character or Will Smith's character or the crazy loon who thinks he's been abducted by aliens character, or even in this case, the president's character. And we get to kind of go through the film really connected to them. And I thought that was a really neat concept and we had a lot of fun with it. It was a great time and leads me to saying that it is a wholly different type of blockbuster than the film that we are talking about today. But the film we're talking about today is also a blockbuster. And in fact, Jaws is widely considered the first ever summer blockbuster. Interesting. Interesting, yeah. Um, I don't know if... Did you get a chance to watch any of the special features or making of on this movie, Patrick? I did not. I'm going to try to watch them this week. This weekend was crazy for me, but it's on my to-do list at some point this next week. They're really good. So... I highly recommend it. It's funny because my daughter made a comment that, oh, dad, are we going to watch a documentary? Is it going to be as long as the movie itself? And I said, oh, no, they never are. I was wrong. <laughs> the making of Jaws as a documentary on the Blu-ray, and it is it is a little over two hours. But it is fascinating. And the fact that Jaws came out in the summer is so impactful, yet it wasn't intentional. Um can you even, I mean, I just can't even imagine a world where what if Jaws came out in the winter and we were currently talking about the awesome winter blockbuster season and the, <laughs> and the Oscar summer of Oscar indies, you know, like yeah. 
I just it's just crazy how things happen and set set on course these events that will change the way films uh the film landscape happens in the future. I know that it I think I guess most movies have always had a tagline of some kind and I this one had a tagline as well, right? Did it? I I believe so. I'm pretty sure that we would go with don't go in the water. Okay. So I don't know if that was the first or if that was just one of you know many that have come down the pipe. But I think taglines in and of themselves have become synonymous with big summer blockbusters, at least maybe in a visual sense, but mostly in a, you know, a textual sense of, of whatnot. But uh, so usually if you know a summer blockbuster is coming or, or an attempt at a summer blockbuster, it'll usually have a tagline at some point attached to it. That's a very good point and very neat. I'd actually like to go and kind of take a few minutes someday and just search for some of that and see what, what are some of the best taglines and when did they, you know, what movies they're attached to. It'd be a neat, neat thing to look up. Hey, let's be lazy and let's let our listeners do it for us. So if you get a chance, hook it up on Facebook and see what you come up with. That's a fantastic idea, Patrick. Go to the Facebook page and the Facebook group, join that and tell us what your favorite summer blockbuster movie taglines are. That's your homework for the week. All right. So now that's out of the way, obviously we are introducing the summer blockbuster, the movie, the shark movie of all shark movies, Jaws. <laughs> this movie came out in 1976. This is before I was born, uh, three years before Patrick and I came into the world. It's directed by Steven Spielberg, the great, great Steven Spielberg. And it stars Roy Scheider as Chief Brody, Robert Shaw as Quint the Fisherman, and Richard Dreyfus. Or as I like to call him after rewatching this, uh, a young Paul Rudd looks like <laughs> Paul Rudd with a beard, actually. Um, and Richard Dreyfus was um, Hop- Hooper, Hooper, not Hopper. I don't know why I want to call him Hopper. This isn't Zootopia. <laughs> yeah. So Richard Dreyfus was Hooper. Um, and yeah, we're ready to get started. We will be spoiling the movie. If you haven't seen Jaws, shame on you. And I don't know what planet you're from, but you need to rectify that. ASAP, that's your other homework for this week. If you haven't seen this movie, you need to get on it because this is a great film. And I'm going to start off real quick by telling you a little bit of my history with the movie. I did not see this. I haven't seen it in the last 30 years. So I haven't seen it as an adult. Um, I watched it as a child. I don't know how young I was. I don't have fond uh, memories of that time as far as my movie-going history and I wasn't really into movies until I hit more of my teenage years. So this was really my first time seeing it with a level of adult, both expectations and the ability to really dig into it and chew on what was happening. Think about the movie in more than just as more than just, oh, it's a movie about a shark attack. Because this movie is much deeper than that. Um, No pun intended there. Um, There may be a lot of that happening throughout this podcast, actually. (laughs) As we dive in. (laughs) As we dive in to the podcast. Yes, it'll be a barrel of fun. Um, (laughs) We should stop. Patrick, what's your history with Jaws? I, um, as you know from some of my conversations with you about life in general, I, I come late to the party. 
I bought my first PS3 about two years ago. Yes, I said PS3, not PS4. And so <laughs> if that tells you anything, I, I grew up in that same regard. I I watched, um, I think I remember seeing Jaws on television as a kid, but my first real instance of it wasn't until Shark Week um, when I was in college. And I don't know if it coincided with Finals Week or not, but I think they both, you know, Shark Week and Finals Week felt like the same thing. I mean, I felt like I was going to get bitten by either a bad grade or whatever. Yeah, either one was going to eat you alive. Exactly. And so I'm watching this on television with a bunch of commercials, and I remember thinking, yeah, I remember this was pretty long. And I remember at one point watching just one of the attacks, and I said to myself, man, I really missed out because this is a theater experience. I mean, this right here should not be watched on a 26-inch square television, um, which shows you how old I am because I had a square television in college. Uh, Standard definition, too. So you have this experience, and so if if I'm being honest, my first real experience of enjoying this film was this instance of watching it. And I just, wow, I was blown away. I was like, why did I miss this? Why did I not? You were blown away just like Jaws? I was blown away just like Jaws. I'm I'm, I'm sorry. Regrettable puns. I'm just, I will apologize as well because that was not intended at all. But yeah, so my, my, my history with it is really just very sparse until this, these last couple of weeks and doing research on it and sitting down and actually watching it um, in a dark living room and just being mesmerized by it. Well, I felt the exact same way as you do. I thought it was an incredible film. I I had it, I kind of had it honorarily, if that's a word, in my top 100 films of all time because I remembered enough about it um, to consider it iconic. But this shot it up to my top 10. I, I can't, I cannot state how much I love this movie enough. Now, a little extra about my history. I am, you know, former Navy sailor. I have a love of the ocean. I've always been fascinated by sharks. Like you mentioned, Patrick shark week, one of my favorite times of the year. I think it's coming up in a couple weeks from now. I actually looked that up. I was like, Oh, what if we're releasing on the same week as shark week? That'd be cool too. <laughs> um, but it's not quite syncing up with us, but it's, it's coming. And I, I just, I, I'm there an amazing animal. Um, and they have such a tie to, prehistory and an era in which we don't have a lot to compare to right now other than you know fossils so sharks are amazing and uh this one this one captivated me because of that but what really surprised me is how much the film drew me in for its personal dramas and its relationships more so than it's shark attacks. Um, so it's kind of like you come for the, you come for the suspense of the shark attacks and stay for the story. And I mean, that's, that's what set this apart is it had such an amazing story. We all know jaws. I mean, it's, it's impossible not to, it has what arguably, arguably could be considered the greatest movie poster of all time. Uh, if you've seen our Facebook and Twitter, you'll see that tonight while we're podcasting, I'm actually wearing a shirt that's a mock-up of that. 
that says paws and has a big cat paw coming out of the water because I'm a cat guy. I have it's three cat. cats. Yeah, I like it. I like it's it. It's an awesome it. shirt. My daughter found it, and we both we have matching shirts that say this. Um, but you know that is one of the greatest movie posters ever. And then of course the music. This is John Williams. One of his. It wasn't his first, and it actually wasn't even the first thing he won an Oscar for. But he considers it the the score that set him on the path to being who he became, which is, in my opinion, the greatest uh, movie composer ever to live. Yeah, I mean, when you're when you're talking about these these things about the movie that the story itself, but then you're talking about these external factors like the poster and the music and John Williams specifically. Those are the things that I remember growing up about the idea of Jaws. This was like this mythology. This movie was like mythological to me. I remember my dad saying, oh, Jaws is a great movie. And I'm like, it's from the 70s, Dad. What movies are good from the 70s? That's crazy. Because I grew up in the 80s, and I mean, it, it was, it's a different film visually. It's a different film tonally. And when you watch it, you realize that. I mean, if, if I'm going to compare it to another film kind of either on the same level and in the same way on an opposite level, I'm going to look at Spielberg's Jurassic Park about this man versus uh, versus nature and where we have this story about people and the shark takes a back seat visually and otherwise Jurassic Park does almost the opposite of that we we still see some of those jaws type elements in Jurassic Park but it's but it's it's heavy duty on the, on the dinosaurs and I think the connection that I have with Jurassic Park echoed in my connection with jaws and how just jaw-dropping some of these moments were and how in awe of some of these visuals I was. Uh, and so I really connected with that. Oh, for sure. I mean, it. he has, Spielberg, he has a phenomenal way of of doing that. I mean, when I was, I was talking again about my, my you know, top movies of all time list, I was shocked at how many Spielberg flicks are on there. I mean, we're talking... I think my top 10 or my top 15 at least includes Jaws, Jurassic Park, Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, it's like it's like a who's who of Spielberg's movies. Um, and I, for some reason, I never made that connection that, wow, maybe the, this guy is one of my favorite directors and I didn't even realize it. Uh, maybe because I don't track his newer stuff as much. Um, but his old stuff, oh, Close Encounters. Uh, Spielberg did Close Encounters, right? That's high on my list. I just bought that one recently. Looking forward to a a reviewing of it. So yeah, Spielberg's phenomenal. The visuals in this one are spot on. Hey Patrick, did you know that this was based on a book? I did actually, I looked it up and, um, and came to, to realize that when I, I think one of the first pieces of trivia that I read, again, you guys know that I love reading the trivia on IMDb. And I've, as a side note, I've noticed that the bigger the movie, the more popular it is, the longer the trivia is. So every movie I watch, I look at the trivia and I'm going, oh, either this is a new movie or people didn't like it, right? Anyway, but yeah, I did see that. And there's a part of me that wants to read the novel, but at the same time, I kind of don't want to ruin the movie experience by by reading it. Even though I know it's it's gotten some great reviews, I don't really want to taint the idea of Jaws with the companion or the, the novel that it's based on. So that documentary that's on the Blu-ray talks a little bit about it and the the book is different from what they've explained. I, I, from what I understand, the ending is actually completely different. Um, it doesn't happen the same way, which is not 
uncommon, you know, for adaptations to change things like that. Uh, Spielberg talks about how he really wanted a, he's like, we need a big rousing ending. You know, the book, the book has a very, I guess, dramatic ending that's somber and would have had people kind of just quietly reflecting. And Spielberg's like, no, no, I need them jumping out of their chairs and cheering. And, uh, and that's what happens for me, man. At the end of this movie, I actually did. I jumped up off my couch I was like, yes, yes, you kill that shark. You know, like, I'm like, get him, get him. I mean, every time he's missing a shot, I'm like, hit him. Come on, come on, hit him. You got to get him. You got to get him. Yeah, I did the exact same thing. I'm I'm sitting here with my, like, fists clenched because I know the story. I know the shark eventually gets killed, but I'm still just tense. And I'm thinking in my head, why am I freaking out? I know what the ending is. It's the storytelling style that Spielberg is so famous for. I'll continue to watch things like this in like Jurassic Park and get that same vibe because there's something about the experience of being in the moment with these characters that the rewatchability increases exponentially. Oh, totally. It, it totally does. You just, you're, gosh, you're so connected to them. It, it, it really felt different than watching a lot of the modern day movies I watch. It almost makes me think I'm sometimes I praise movies a little too much um, I'll be honest and say that and the way that the characters are developed is just done masterfully I mean it, it is masterful that is there is no other word for it other than it is exceptional and it is something for other films to look at and try to achieve I mean you have so much going on and so many little moments in this film that contribute to that that most movies just gloss over. They just move from big event to big event with little travel scenes in between, you know, little, just little, little scenes that just, just, they, they serve no plot development, no character development. They're just to quickly get us to the next big one. And Jaws and Steven Spielberg in general, take the time to rest. They take the time to pause and slow down and let us feel some sadness characters let us feel or with the characters not for the characters let us feel some guilt for the characters um one thing i I wanted to mention that i i forgot to real quick is that the the author is in the movie did you know that no i didn't he is he is for his his actual career at the time he was a an interviewer reporter and a reporter and an interviewer and in the film he is the reporter on the beach who is giving the report about what's going on there in the 4th of July. And he tells this story in the documentary about how they approached him. And he's like, well, yeah, I can't mess this up. I don't even have to act. He's like, you know, this is what I do for a living. So this is the perfect (laughs) thing for me to do. And I just, I just thought that was really neat. And it's just super cool that they got the author to be in the movie. Yeah, for sure. If that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. I was just going to ask you what you thought of, there's for me the primary factor in this film is a theme of fear um i feel like it's all over the place um i feel like there's a fear of sharks i feel feel like there's a fear of water and drowning chief brody you know he's scared to go in the water what do you think about that is there there any other fears in there that you caught that i didn't mention i mean i know those two are pretty big but there's got to be more yeah, if, if you're going to tie it into that theme, I think that an extension of that is the fear of being alone. And what I see is you have 
the what I consider the main three characters. You have you have Brody, Quint, and and Hooper, who in their own rights are are alone in their professions. They're alone in their convictions, at least in some regards. And we see that that loneliness come out. And what what I see is that that fear being battled with coming together for a common cause and 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 this idea of needing one another and the second half of the movie which ironically is just those three on a boat i mean i think if i looked at it correctly i i think it the the whole entire second half was just them on a boat i mean how much more alone can you get from from the island i mean even the island itself is an island off of something else it's not connected to another state so there's a sense of isolation Mm. And this, the fear that goes into that, and I think that plays a lot into the the character development and the story as, as a whole. Yeah, I think it does too. I agree. I think it it really informs how the characters respond to the situations that they're put in. Um, they don't they don't like being alone. Some of some of them, uh, Quint kind of does, but um, you know, as we'll find out later in the film, you know, he he has his reasons for what he does. Um, he's out there alone hunting these, these animals and, and he has a very good reason for wanting to be alone, um, due to his past. Uh, man. Yeah. I, I hadn't even thought, I hadn't really thought that much about it, but you're, you're absolutely right. Another one that I'd thought of was the, you know, like the fear of the irrational, not irrational. Cause it is rational, but every film needs a villain. And, you know, the shark can only take on so much of that villain role, role for us. And it's kind of neat because, you know, in a lot of monster movies, that's what they do. They put everything on the monster. But in this one, we have a city council who is terrified of losing tourist income. That's another big fear theme in this movie. And, I mean, that's what leads to their decision of let's not close the beach. Right. They're like, no, 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 we're, we're fine. You know, there's no, there's no reason to do that. We're going to lose too much money, which ultimately, you know, leads to Alex Kintner's death. Um, the boy dies. And I think, I think that, you know, it's kind of interesting because that, that then transfers into this new theme of guilt that a lot of the characters also experience. Um, specifically Chief Brody, who feels very guilty about having let, let himself be talked into letting the beach be open when he's the one that's responsible. Like he's the, he's the public safety and he got talked out of it. And now a boy is dead. What did, did that, did that hit home with you at all? It really did. And I think the moment that, that articulated that the most was when he gets slapped by, by the mom and he's trying to be consoled, I think by his wife or by someone and they say, you know, this isn't your fault. I mean, none of this is your fault. And he goes, yes, it is. Because he owns that. He's like, this is my job. And nothing should have changed my mind because this is what I do. This is why I was hired. This is what I was brought here for. And I let people down and someone died. And the, the facial expression that he makes and the line when he says it just emotionally just got me and I was like oh man I mean I I I died inside I mean I I didn't but I mean I just I really felt a real sense of empathy for him because he had to for whatever reason for his own principles 
or whatever had to say or had to ta- had had to take responsibility because nobody else was. I mean, he could pass the book on, but what what good would it have done? It wouldn't have solved the problem, and it wouldn't have made him feel any better. No, you're absolutely right about that. It would not have. And um, I guess would you say he's the main character if we had to have one? I guess I guess most of the POV is Chief Brody. Yeah, he drives a story for sure. I mean, it begins well. It doesn't begin with him, obviously, but the the first couple of scenes are are involving him and he he's the one that's trying to get more information about what happened to the girl at the very beginning and so he's really driving the narrative for the most part because Hooper doesn't show up I think until maybe uh, the first third of the movie and then um, I believe Quint shows up about the same time when the reward is being offered yeah I think that's I think you're absolutely right Um, I particularly like another scene with him where you know I guess kind of going back to that fear he's watching the water after the first time when he tries to shut the beaches down and they won't do it, it's it's right. It's just prior to Alex Kintner being killed by Jaws, and he he's watching the water and we keep seeing these 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 people on the beach will walk by in his vision and it'll flash to the water scenes of different different people out swimming and the tension is just it's un it's unreal how much it can build um, just to see somebody swimming and go underwater and then. You see a head coming out of the water, and you 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 start holding your breath as a viewer, and it's just this old man with a you know hat on, or with yeah. a swimming cap on, and uh, you can really get a feeling right there for for Chief Brody's. He's terrified that something's going to happen on his watch, and of course, of course it does, um, unfortunately, but it's really interesting how he uses that then to continue to fight against what he is the opposition in this film. So he, he's always trying to do what's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He, you know, he's, he's going against the city council. Um, he does it once they shut him down. He, then they catch the tiger shark and he kind of says, yeah, maybe, maybe these guys are right. Maybe it's not, maybe that's not the shark. And they're like, no, this is the shark. And so of course he then comes back later and goes through with the plan to verify whether or not that tiger shark is Jaws or not. And he just, he continually, you know, fights against that opposition uh, for what he knows to be right. And I think that's a very strong thing that we can um, connect with as a viewer, because that's what we want to believe we would do. If we know something to be true, we we, want to think that we would be willing to fight for what we think is right, um, even when the majority are trying to tell us, no, 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 don't worry about that. Right. And I, and I think that his, his ideologies and his perspective became validated in a couple of different moments. I think his, his ideas became validated with Hooper when they were cutting the shark open and finding all the other junk that was not a human being inside. Um, and I think with, with Quint, it became validated the moment he stepped onto the boat to go after it. Um, and I think that for, for, for him, he needed those two guys. And I think that was probably the most, uh, from a narrative standpoint, that was the most obvious moment for me of seeing where he was saying, I don't know these guys. They come from completely different worlds from each other and from me, but we have something here that we need to do. And we're going to, we're going to squash any differences that we have, any, even though there's going to be tension. I mean, we see that 
almost hysterically between Hooper and Quint, uh, this back and forth, um, just ribbing of each other. Well, mostly by Quint. And, but at the same time, at the end of the day, they're hunting a shark and they want to kill a shark. And I think for a guy like Brody, that's what he holds on to. He holds on to the fact that I have two of the people that they may not have gotten to this place with me in terms of what my belief system is, uh, the same way, but we're still at the same place. We still have an end goal and it's the same. And I think that, you know, encouraged him. I think that gave him a lot more strength going into the back half of the film. Man, I could not agree more. Um, I, I thought the same thing and it just, it's so, it's so cool to have half of a movie focus on that, to focus on those three guys that are just working together to overcome those differences. And you mentioned some of that ribbing that, that some of that was in my favorite parts of the film. I mean, it's particularly, there's this one moment that there, Quint is drinking a beer <laughs> and he just chugs the beer and then he just squeezes the can just looking at Hooper right across the boat yeah. and Hooper just stares back at him and you can tell like you can tell like I mean Quint's much much more grizzled and much bigger you know and Hooper's like you know what no I'm gonna get this and he has this little cup like a little like plastic drinking cup <laughs> like a water cup I, I don't know if he had wine in it or what but it, it felt like he might have had like you know a, a cup of wine or something and he just it was probably water and he makes this big scene about drinking it like throws it back like he's like chugging something really hard yeah and then he just crinkles it up while staring him down like like he was some big bad strong man too and gosh it was just i i got so much joy out of watching their relationship Mm -hmm. um growing through those going through that that transition yeah um and then, you know, getting closer and closer as things became more and more scary, more and more real, you know, they had to bond together. Right. And I, I think one of the great moments, um, I love that, that moment, by the way. It reminded me a lot of uh, the instance in Tombstone where Doc Holliday is taking on, I can't remember the other guy's name, and he's, yeah, with the, with the, with the gun and he's showing off his gun skills. Johnny Ringo. Johnny Ringo. <laughs> and... And so Doc Holliday comes back by, you know, twirling a cup. And it's it had that same kind of hilarity and whatever to it. But I think for me, that payoff was at the very end when we see uh, when we see Hooper and Brody on that, I guess it was a life raft or something, they were floating back to shore. And Hooper says, um, or I guess it's just after the shark is blown up and, and Hooper comes back and he says, what about Quint? And he goes, you know, he didn't make it. And this expression on Dreyfus's face is almost like a sense of I'm 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 going to I'm mourning that a little bit. I respect him. Uh we didn't really like each other. I mean, there was a lot of just back and forth again like we talked about, but you you get a sense that there was a sense of respect that was earned uh by Quint to Hooper. Yeah, there there definitely is a scene and there's a specific moment in this film where it is earned that we'll talk about a little bit later in more detail. Um, and I think that they do a great job of showing what you're saying, how much that gave them a respect for him. And they, they knew that they weren't going to get this done without him. I mean, you can be a scientist, you can be a chief of police, but Quint's a shark hunter. This is what he does for a living. And he may not have been the one to survive this, 
which is ironic, of course, but he's the only one that, that made this happen. You know what I mean? They, they were able to improvise and they were able to get it done, but they knew that they would be dead if it weren't for Quint. They, they would never have been able to accomplish this task. And so there is a huge amount of respect for him, despite the fact that maybe he's hard to get along with. There's, and there's, there's a great scene, man, um, on the boat. This, this stuck out to me so much because it's the kind of scene that I feel like I said this, I think I was talking about this earlier that, that movies like just don't do this anymore. They don't rest and give us those moments. And one of those is they're on the boat and they start to sing and they, they're singing this song show me the way to go home. And they, they just, it slowly becomes this thing. They all know it and they just all start singing it. And all we get is a glimpse of three guys out in the middle of the ocean in a boat tracking a man eating killer shark who don't really necessarily like each other, but they share this brief, happy moment. And it's not, it's not full of, it's not, it's not fake joy, you know, it doesn't it doesn't then take us into a point in the story where they're all of a sudden best friends because they sang a song together. But it gives us this moment of camaraderie between them that was so so powerful. Um and ah, I just I wish we had more of that in film. I I I'm so moved by that kind of scene. Mm-hmm. And it was it was fantastic to well, me. It's definitely Did you like that? I did and it's very connective because if I'm in a cab or if I'm on a bus or if I'm hanging out with a bunch of people I don't know and a song comes on the radio and we all know the lyrics to it, we're all going to sing it. We may not know each other from, you know, from Adam or whatever, but we're we're going to start singing because <laughs> it's weird. Lyrics are a bonding point for us. I know that in high school I would go on retreats with our with our church and we would there a song would come on top 40 and we'd all start singing it and we just start laughing and these are people that I sort of knew at the time and they weren't necessarily bonding moments where we were best friends afterwards. But for that one moment we became part of, we were on common ground and there's something really appealing about that for an individual. I know that I've experienced it personally. And I think for all three of those guys in their own way, they needed that and they felt a sense of, they felt a sense of what you said, camaraderie. So great point. Awesome. Well, uh, is there any other scenes you wanted to mention or talk about? Well, I don't really have, I mean, any particular, besides our top three, I, I think oh, okay. if I were going to talk about like highlights and stuff, I would say the thing I like about Spielberg, particularly in this, in this movie, is, um, is really his sense of subtlety. And I think we've talked about that a little bit here, that, you know, just if, I, if I'm going to call out a few things... The shark, who, by the way, is he's never called Jaws. We make that assumption, but he's never called out. He's always just called the shark, which I never knew. You know, he's never given a name. His name is Bruce. By the cast and crew, I mean. I mean, yeah. I'm by, by, just by, saying. In, <laughs> we'll Can him, you imagine if the name name of the movie was Bruce? Yeah, Do you that, think it would have had the same impact? True. There's some truth to that, for sure. Introducing Bruce. He'll Bruce, the first summer blockbuster. <laughs> I would not see that at all. Nope, me either. Sorry, um, go back to subtlety. So anyway, yeah, so his uh, his screen time is limited to four minutes. This is a two-hour movie, and we see the shark for a grand total of four 
minutes. Um, and then when we see him, we gradually see more of him. So the beginning of the film, we see only this thrashing of his victim. We never see him, actually. We see maybe his perspective of it, but not him. And then with each subsequent attack, we, we see more of him. And then when we get the climax, we see, the, we see Bruce jumping up onto the boat and uh and and uh, and Bertie going you're going to need a bigger boat you know it's just you know so great i love the fact that um there's a moment uh well the, the fact that there's no it's not incredibly violent or gory there's nothing nothing over the top we see, we 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 hear about the attacks we hear the attacks described and we see little bits and pieces but we don't see a a body that's just completely been manhandled well, I mean, at least not at first. Not until Quint, right? But that's actually one of the scenes that was most powerful to me and most impactful as well was the scene at the corner where he's describing the body of the girl and he's not they're not showing us. I kept waiting for the pan- camera to pan down and show us the half torso eaten off body and he doesn't explain it. He just describes it and it is so Oh, man, it's just gut-wrenching. I mean, and eventually we get to see an arm. You know, they pick up an arm for effect to show us that. But really, the scene where before that, just the part leading up to it, where he's just describing like you're talking about, not actually showing, it's 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 so powerful because you're 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 uh, you're, you're imagining it in your head, right? And there's they couldn't have shown me anything that was as bad as what was in my head at that moment. Exactly. And Spielberg is just great at that. There was a moment with in that particular scene where even at the very beginning, I don't know if you caught that, that when they brought the body out, it wasn't wheeled in. It was in a, like a tray. It was in a, like a little tub. So we're already without seeing anything. We're already being told this body is completely ripped to shreds and completely dismembered. So, you know, it's, we're the less is more approach. This great design concept that Spielberg uses throughout the film. is just amazing. Even in some of the dialogue, there's a moment when Brody is looking at his son Michael out the window, and his son's in a boat with his friends. And he's like, Michael, get out of the boat, you know, because he's freaked out. You know, this is after the first attack. And his wife's behind him saying, he's in a boat. Don't, don't worry about him. And, and she kind of picks he's, – he's reading a book on sharks. And so she kind of grabs the book and starts thumbing through it while he's trying to just, just convince Michael to get out of the boat, you know, get up on shore – and what you see is her perspective. You see her looking into this this book, and there's a picture of a shark attacking a boat and pulling someone out of the boat. And then you see her look up and go, Michael, get out of the boat! <laughs> Just things like that. Just lines of dialogue. There's another moment with her and Brody where she's as he's walking to the boat to get ready to go on the shark attack, she's listing off, okay, do you have your Dramamine? Do you have this? You know how you get sick? She's acting like his mom. And what we get is this picture of how much of a sailor he is not. He is completely the furthest type of person that you want <laughs> in this type of moment. And it's hilarious. The dialogue is really, it's not lighthearted, but it's, it's funny. I, was, I found myself chuckling, but we're, 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 we're getting more of the character. There's more reveal from that. And I, I love that kind of stuff. It's not heavy-handed. And I think, we, I think we miss that in some of our bigger movies, our big blockbusters, is that subtlety. That is a perfect lead into one of the questions I wanted to ask you before we jump into our three scenes here. Um, so it's a great place for me to put to, to put this. 
do you think that if summer blockbusters had continued on this path and if we had you know five or six movies that were kind of like jaws and and obviously i don't mean specifically in theme but in that subtlety and in that character development because obviously the summer blockbuster has changed do you think that we would still be experiencing the same level of fatigue as we are now with the summer because the the assumption is that the summer blockbuster equals like my kids said about independence day explosions it means boom 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 big 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 bombastic with yeah sometimes you get killer character development and sometimes you don't but if you had summer blockbusters that were more character driven and subtle um that really put a lot into their sound design and things like that do you think that we would still have the same level of fatigue i don't think so um and i do think so it's it's a split decision for me because when i think about what jaws is compared to what let's say captain america civil war is what i'm seeing is our audi- the audience ebbs and flows there are generations of audience members that prefer things like you have you know psycho wasn't a summer blockbuster i don't believe i don't remember when it came out but it had those same kind of subtle elements um and i think that when you have audiences that crave more explosions, you're going to give them that kind of thing. And you have big, 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 that's, I, I think, I think people would have gotten tired of that. I think people would have gotten tired of the, the, the vertigos and the jaws and the, uh, and the psychos and the one floor of the cuckoo's nest, you know, these movies that are character driven movies and less about action, not that there isn't any action, but they drive, I think character driven stories would get tiresome. And I don't know that a block, if you define a blockbuster by the amount of movie or excuse me, movie, the amount of money that it makes, I don't think um, an audience would have continued on this path of the Jaws path. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And I think that that's part of what makes it even more special um, to me and to, you know, millions of people out there that agree with me that have it very highly ranked in their all time list of films because, um, I, I do agree. I think that, I, I don't think we would have had the same thing as what we call summer blockbusters. Now. Uh, I think, you know, the money aspect is huge and almost more defining than the explosive part of it. Um, but it's these jaws feels more like your Oscar movie in a lot of ways, um, than it does your summer blockbuster. That's true. That's absolutely true. I don't see it as something huge. And I think you mentioned it earlier that I, when I think about Jaws, at least when I thought about it as a kid, there was this unapproachability, like this, uh, this untouchableness of it because it was considered so critically acclaimed, you know, and it's the reason why guys like you and me are kind of revisiting these older films is I'm asking the question that I think you are. Why is this film so great? Why is 2001 such a great movie? You know, why is why are these why are these movies that happen to be character driven so good that if I'm a 16 year old living in 19 you know 88 or whenever I'm going this is really boring. <laughs> I mean, is this movie over yet? <laughs> I mean, this is two hours of of guys on a boat. If you I mean, if if you're gonna call it that, I mean, if you're gonna water it down to that, but you know, when it comes to uh, movies like this, I. 
I think we we miss we miss uh we miss the bigger thing going on here that and I think that's harder in a lot of ways. I'm going to pick on Michael Bay because that's what I do, but I think he's a guy as a director who 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 uses explosions and action as not as a storytelling device, but as the story and he kind of fills it in with some character drama here and there. And a guy like Spielberg, I think, does the opposite of that, which may be why he's considered more critically successful, even though maybe not financially or equally as financially successful, at least in my mind. But I think that these character-driven movies um, do feel more like Oscars, less than blockbusters. Yeah, me too. Michael Bay probably would have had to blow it up about eight to ten sharks and – they would have had to use some sort of either Uzi or missile launcher instead of uh, a, a, just a, a simple rifle. It would have it would have had to been taken to a whole nother level. <laughs> whole nother, I can't even. Michael Bay's Jaws is a scary thought to me. It would definitely be uh, a, a blockbuster. Yeah, yeah, yes, it would. <laughs> it would be uh, at least in spectacle. That's for sure. So. Why don't we transition into our three favorite scenes uh, that we like to do? We like to um, talk about the most impactful scenes emotionally for us and what what we really connected with and what resonated with us. So, Patrick, can you start us off? Yeah. So in keeping in line with this idea of subtlety, you hit on my number three, actually. And it was the scene with Hooper in the coroner's office examining the body. Ooh, it's a good scene. I'm glad you picked that one. It's a good one, man. And I want to I wanna really focus on – we've already talked about what we don't see. So I want to talk about the things that we do see. And here's Hooper. He's beginning to go into his spiel about kind of giving his uh, – I don't know what you would call it. It's a diagnosis of what he thinks happened. And the moment he sees the body, you see him – his facial expression is one of disgust. And he said – he stops in the middle of his diagnosis and says, can I get a glass of water? And it, he continues to do his job, continues to do the diagnosis. He drinks the water. And even as he drinks the water, he's like nervous and almost like he's, it's almost like he's going to gag on it. But what you hear in his – first of all, you're seeing fear in his face, terror, surprise, confusion, and his voice elevates. So if you're listening to him, it gets – not louder and louder, but a little bit more intense and more intense. And he finally kind of finishes off by saying, did you not notify the Coast Guard about this? And Brody's like, no, I didn't know I was supposed to or whatever. And then he, he continues to do his analysis. But what you see is just his fear and elevation of like realizing this was not a boat accident. This was a shark attack. And what I saw was not just fear, but excitement. I mean, he's an oceanographer and he's coming in to check out what's going on. And when I see Richard Dreyfus just start going, seeing seeing just a just a just a con, just a I don't know a cornucopia of emotions in his face, to me, that is what Spielberg's actors do. They tell, they show their emotions in their expressions in the nonverbal stuff. Because what we hear in his voice, what we hear him saying is is purely like fact. Here's how she died. Here's what I suspect, you know, and starts throwing out all this biological science stuff. But what we hear in his voice is a ton of different emotion. And I was connected to it too. And then the fact that we don't ever see the body, I'm going, oh, what did he see? What did he see? It just, it blew me away. And I, I was, 
I was, I was really, really connected to that moment with him. That's a great one. I, one of my favorite scenes in the film for sure. And, and in a film full of great scenes, um, this, this was a hard one. This is a hard list to make because there were so many that I felt were just 100% necessary to the movie and that we could have chosen from my number three. Um, I'm, I'm going to go with the, the opening shark attack. It's the iconic scene and the way in which it is framed and filmed in the dark, you know, I, at the very beginning of watching that scene for the first, you know, 10 to 15 seconds of it, I almost was frustrated. I was like, man, why is it so dark? You know, we're not getting to see much here. I can barely make out that she's a girl in the water. Um, you know, there's a little bit of moonlight in the background reflecting off of the water and it's kind of cloudy. And, and as, as it went on, I realized that's the point. That is the point. Um, the tension and the fear and the suspense in that scene is just, it's like the scene in psycho. Like you mentioned psycho earlier. It's like the shower scene, uh, in psycho. It's, it's just one of the greats and you never see the shark. We've talked, we talked about this before. Never seeing the shark in this movie was so important. And I know that a lot of that was kind of by accident because the shark wasn't working on the set. Mm-hmm for a long period of time, this movie took months and months and months longer than it was supposed to take because they just couldn't get the shark working. And that really ended up being a lucky thing for Spielberg and for the the movie, because if I think if we had seen so much of the shark, it would have totally ruined the experience later on. We wouldn't have had the same, maybe not, maybe not totally ruined it. That's, that's probably too much, but we would never have had the same experience as we do later in the film without this opening scene framing everything from us. And the way that her head bobs underwater like a, like a, like a bobber, like up and down. And then she gets taken down and I'm just like, I held my breath and I'm just like, Oh my gosh, she's coming back up. She's coming back up. And I mean, it doesn't take long, but I did. I, you know, I, ugh, I took a breath real quick. Like, Oh my, my gosh, it's going to happen here. Is she, is he just going to eat her in one big, you know, bite? And then she comes back up and then she starts getting taken for a ride and, you know, gets slammed up against the buoy and it's just violent. And it's, it's just incredible. That whole, that whole sequence um, puts, I think it puts you in a position where we then transition into the character side of the movie and the story. And the whole time I'm wondering, when's that coming back? Mm-hmm. When is that going to happen again? Yeah. And so it, there's, it, it, it creates their multiple, these multiple times throughout the film where I'm expecting that and I, and I don't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And if- so it's, yeah. So it's more powerful when it does. I, I, and I don't know, I remember reading about the fact that the uh, the shark had problems in the water. I think there were some issues where it, it worked on fresh water, but salt water, it just, it, it died. You know, it just, it reacted differently. And I, I don't remember, maybe you can fill me in if, I don't know if Spielberg intended to show the shark in that opening scene. Um, I'm not sure about that scene particularly, no. I, I do know he planned on showing it a lot more than it got shown. Yeah. In general, but not not necessarily that scene. So I'm going to say he didn't because I think I'm going to keep the genius label attached to him. And I think that had we seen the shark more than we did, this movie would have probably gone from critically acclaimed blockbuster to B movie. Because, I mean, let's let's face it, the special effects don't necessarily hold up like they would today. I mean, I can admit that, that it's not necessarily like the shark itself isn't 
crazy scary, but the idea of the shark really is. Um, so I think that opening scene really personified that. The idea of the shark is what we became fearful of, not the shark itself and what it could do. All right, so my number two is was in a close tie for number one. Um, and it really, it's the scene just after Brody is lambasted by the mother. He slapped and he says that, that great line, you know, he says, it's not your fault. And he goes, yes, it is. You know, I'm responsible. And then this is where John Williams really shines because we know the theme song. I mean, we know the, the iconic Jaws theme. But in this moment, we get this light piano sound. There's this dinner scene right after that moment. And here's, here's Brody with his hands kind of closed, like he's praying, sitting at the dinner table. And you can tell he's like contemplating. And there's this light piano music playing. And the camera pans back, and we see his son imitating him. And at first you're thinking, what does this have to do with anything? You know, we've just been through a shark attack and action adventure. And now we're in this moment of drama that almost feels completely out of place. But when I think about this theme of isolation and the need for people, the need for each other, what I see in this moment, and of course, being a dad myself, I'm connecting with this now because I have a son. Um, There's this emphasis on both his feeling of isolation and then the feeling that he isn't alone that his son believes in him as young as he is. He may not understand what's going on, but he sees his dad as a hero, as a guy worth imitating. And it's, it's fun. It's you, you capture so much sweetness and tenderness in that moment. And then you see this, this, this line that comes out, he says to his son, give us a kiss. And this little, little kid voice goes, why? And he goes, because I need it. And to me, that's the turning point of the film for me. That's where, the, that's where isolation meets community and, and, and the need for one another. And then we get this subtle jumpstart into the back half of the film. And I really, really love that scene. That's my number two as well. And I'm not even going to try to one-up what you just said because you defined it perfectly. So I'm going to say a big ditto to everything that you just said, uh, it was the turning point. I agree. And it was the most emotional non monologue in the movie. I'll say for now. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, so yeah, that was my number two too. What was your number one though? Well, my number one would have to be, um, the moment that Brody says, you know, he see, we see the shark in all of its glory when it comes up onto the boat and you see Brody not yell, but step back and I think drop, I think he, I don't know if he's smoking a cigarette. I feel like he is, but then he drops the cigarette out of his mouth and you see him sort of back up going into the cabin. And then he says the iconic line, you're going to need a bigger boat. What I loved though, was everything that happened afterwards. And the thing in particular that I loved was the variety of music that Williams incorporated. If you picked out any moment in this first attack on the shark, it could have been interpreted as, you know, adventure as drama, as horror, because we get almost three different tones in the music and also in the, um, 
in the actions of the characters. And this, this, this particular scene sort of in a microcosm fit the entirety of, of how the approach to the shark was. For each of the characters, for a guy like Quint, he was having a great time. I mean, here's a guy who he hunts sharks for a living. So this is almost this isn't like the day we kill the shark. This is a Tuesday for him. And for a guy like Brody, he's like, this stuff just got real. And for a guy like Hooper, he's like, I'm going to get my dissertation just completely stamped with like a Nobel Prize or something because this is awesome. You know, and he's in this state of like, he's like almost in the middle of Brody and Quint in terms of his excitement and fear. And the actions that they do, everything that takes place feels almost, almost matter of fact. There was no, there was no terror. I mean, there was terror, but it was terror in almost a calm sense. It's like we were watching these guys do what they knew how to do, you know, hit him with the spear and let that spear be attached to a big barrel that's going to keep him above water. And I'm sitting here watching this and I'm going, okay, this doesn't feel epic, but this harkens back to this idea that for most of the movie, we have been engaged in these characters and we've become less spectators and more participants. Like with Spielberg's use of cameras, you know, showing these, these bobbing shots in the water, you know, we're in the water with these other swimmers and stuff like that. And so by the time we get to this, this moment, this first attack, it doesn't have to feel epic. Um, what I, okay, so I guess what I liked the most about this was that it didn't need to be overblown and over the top because as an audience, we were trusted to already have been invested in the ominousness of the shark, the depth of the characters, and the stakes of what needed to happen. We didn't need to be sold anymore. So this didn't need to be blown out of proportion. It didn't need to be an over-the-top attack of the shark. And I really, as an audience member, I felt incredibly respected. Like, cool. You don't have to tell me and show me and do all these things. You just trust me because you trust yourself as a storyteller to do your thing. You trust these actors and you trust the special effects people and you trust this whole team. And so on an emotional level, it didn't feel like something that was like, ah, gripping. But I felt like I was part of that team. I felt like I was that fourth person that was helping these guys out. And I loved that. I didn't feel like I was watching a movie at that point. I felt like I was on this adventure with them, just getting incredibly uh, swept up in what they were doing. And those emotions came out, the emotions that these guys felt. But more than anything, I felt like a participant, not like a spectator. That is awesome. I, I think that's a worthy choice. Um, it's not the right choice for number one. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. We... We on a podcast here, we believe in in a freedom of favorite scenes. I guess you could say. <laughs> so you're allowed to to have that one. I will, I'll let it. I'll let it go. Okay. Now, it's a, it's an amazing scene. I agree. Um, but for me, so this number one is is unquestionable. There there was never never any doubt in my mind. Um, Quint is probably. I don't even know where I would make this list up, but he's got to be near the top of my favorite supporting characters in cinema history. Uh, I just, I absolutely love everything about his character. So as a Navy veteran and uh, a former sailor that I mentioned earlier, the tragedy of the USS Indianapolis is very close to my heart. Um, and Quint's retelling is one of the most moving moments in cinematic history, in my opinion. Japanese submarine slammed two torpedoes into our side, Chief. He was coming back 
From the island of Tinian, the lady just delivered the bum, the Hiroshima bum. Eleven hundred men went into the water. The vessel went down in twelve minutes. Didn't see the first shark for about half an hour. Tiger, thirteen footer. You know, you know that when you're in the water, chief. You tell by looking from the dorsal to the tail. Well, we didn't know. But our bomb mission had been so secret. No distress signal had been sent. <laughs> they didn't even list us overdue for a week. Very first light, Chief. Sharks come cruising. So we formed ourselves into tight groups. You know, it's kind of like old squares in a battle, like you see in a calendar, like the Battle of Waterloo, and the idea was, shark comes to the nearest man, that man, he start pounding and hollering and screaming, and sometimes the shark would go away. Sometimes he wouldn't go away. Sometimes that shark, he looks right into you, right into your eyes. You know the thing about a shark, he's got... Lifeless eyes, black eyes, like a doll's eyes. When he comes at you, doesn't seem to be living until he bites you. And those black eyes roll over white, and then, ah, oh, then you hear that terrible high-pitched screaming. The ocean turns red, and in spite of all the pounding and the hollering, they all come in. And they rip you to pieces. <laughs> No, by the end of that first dawn, lost a hundred men. I don't know how many sharks, maybe a thousand. I don't know how many men. They average six an hour. On Thursday morning, Chief, I bumped into a friend of mine, Herbie Robinson from Cleveland, a baseball player, Bosun's mate. I thought he was asleep. Reached over to wake him up. Bobbed up and down in the water. It was like a kind of top. Upended. Well, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, Lockheed Ventura. So she swung in low and he saw us to the young pilot, a lot younger than Mr. Hooper anyway. He saw us and he come in low and three hours later, a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So 1,100 men went in the war. 316 men come out of the sharks, took the rest, June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. So when I became a chief petty officer in the Navy, we were trained for months on Navy history. Um, it was just beaten into us, not literally, uh, but beaten into our, our brains. We repeated things over and over and over. Um, sometimes, you know, we would we would go to, to morning PT and we would have to recite Medal of Honor winners, uh, not winners, uh, Medal of Honor recipients, and things of that nature. We'd have to talk about battles and and famous um, naval uh, events. And so 
one thing that I remember happening is this clip got played in a training when I was in it. And for some reason, I never put two and two together that this came out of the movie Jaws because that's not what my training was about at the time. It was about the USS Indianapolis. And this was just a method for having this story, you know, relayed to us, having these events recounted. And eventually I became the keeper of the traditions as the chief petty officer once I put those khakis on. And so for several years after, I remember being in trainings where we would use this clip or talk about this event and have sailors go research it and come back to us with this exact story. The USS Indianapolis tragedy is the largest disaster at sea ever suffered by the USS Navy. Um, the USS Navy. The U.S. Navy. <laughs> the USS Indianapolis. And uh, it also marked the final casualty of World War II. The atom bombs that were dropped days later, as Quint talks about, in the war, um, as he talks, as he says, you know, 1,196 men went in the water that day, and about 300 of them went down with the ship, and there were about 900 left, and only 317 survived. So to me, this goes way beyond just about the fact that it was also the biggest shark attack in history. We don't know, and we, we can never know how many of those 900 men in the water um, perished by shark attack. We just don't know. Could have been a few. It could have been the majority of them. Um, but we know that it happened, and Quint survived it. His character survived it. So later, when he is finally eaten alive by Jaws, it's more than just an amazing cinematic death scene. Um if you understand that story and that speech that he gives, you can't help but understand the irony of the fact that here he is. He was in this tragedy. He survived it, one of very few that did. And he goes on to become a shark hunter, a fisher of these animals. He's a loner. He doesn't want to be with other people that can get hurt again. He doesn't want to see his, his shipmates go down with him. He just wants to get revenge on these sharks. And so it's it's much more than just a cool blockbuster, him grabbing the machete and just fighting this thing to the death as he's being eaten. There is there is such an irony there and such an importance in what he's doing, in my opinion, um, that it, it's all connected and it gives me a sense of pride in his character um, that he just keeps going until his last breath. Additionally, there's a little bit of trivia on this that I just want to point out. I found out from the documentary. Apparently, this scene was written in by the screenwriter, and it was about two paragraphs long, this uh, this speech. And Spielberg said, you know, I, I kind of think I want that to be – I want it to be a full speech. I want it to be a little longer because it's really good. So he gave it to another writer, a second writer. And that guy wrote it up, and he made it into this huge speech that was just way too long, two or three pages long. So then Robert Shaw, the um, actor who was also a playwright, believe it or not, took a shot at it. He said, you know, I want to I do this myself. And so he ended up rewriting it down to the version that we actually get in the film. So I think that's really neat that three people – contributed to the eventual creation of that speech and that the final version is from the actor that's giving it. And 
Richard Dreyfus says in this documentary that he as well had kind of a similar reaction as me. He said, when that happened, and I'll paraphrase what he said, he said, actors have to pretend sometimes to be interested. And he said, there was no pretending. He had our full attention. And I just thought that was, man, I just, it was like a mic drop moment. It was a just be quiet, be still and reflect moment. And so I wanted to make sure that we talked about the USS Indianapolis and kind of gave that scene its proper respect, both for cinematic reasons and for historical ones. Yeah, <clears throat> that's great, man. I, I love the the fact that as a as a director, um, Spielberg can attach so many layers to a, a scene, a line of dialogue. To me, that speaks to the creativity behind crafting a story. And I will, this is a personal thing with me, I will always gravitate to a creative team that uses those things to tell their story, adding spectacle as bonus points and not the other way around. Um, I think you said it best at the beginning, like they come for the shark attack but stay for the, for the character development. That's exactly what this was. Um, so really great stuff, man. I, I couldn't have said it better myself. And I love that you have a connection to it because that, you know, in the same way that Dreyfus as an actor, just kind of own that, um, you know, you connect to it because of that personal, uh, tie with the Navy, something that I couldn't do. I mean, I can only go so far in terms of getting my own, my own emotional connection to it, but to have it come from someone who has that direct connection to it is just fascinating. So good stuff, man. Glad you glad you shared that, and um, definitely worthy of a top scene for 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 this one. Um, well, we're uh, getting close to the end of the line. Hope you guys have enjoyed the conversation. We- end of the line is that another fishing joke? Dang it! I did- or pun? Ugh. Yeah. Hey, we we went we went without him for a long time. <laughs> we were due. I'm not. I'm really not trying to do this. I'm normally a bad pun guy, but this is. No more fish. Reel us in, Patrick. Reel us in. Uh, Mic drop (laughs) and turn off, right? (laughs) Um, So if you guys want to uh, connect with us and be a part of the conversation, we'd love to continue this in social media. For myself, you can find me at Shoeless Patch both on Twitter and Facebook. You can also catch the show at Feelin' Film on Twitter, feelinfilm.com. We also have our Facebook page, feelinfilm. Just do a little search for that. We'd love to hear feedback from you guys. We, we really, really, I mean, being our 10th episode, a good portion, a good reason of that for that is the fact that you guys are listening and you guys are responding. Keep, keep doing it. Keep doing it, man. Aaron, what about you? Where can they find you? Uh, you can find me all over at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. Um, Facebook, Twitter, etc. And um, yeah, uh, we we definitely like to engage and talk to you guys. It's one of the most fun things we've been able to do. We love seeing you talk to each other too. So come do that. That Facebook group, Facebook group I was talking about earlier is a is a great place for that. Uh, you can come and and put in your own thoughts and just throw out your ideas and see what other people think. For next week, oh Patrick, did you have something else? Well, I was just going to add, um, I was thinking about this for all you like technical film guys that are out there. I, I was, uh, recently introduced to a web series called every frame, a painting. 
and it's really in its it's it's a it's a web series that is done by an editor who highlights different creators' methods and why they work and why they don't and things like that. But there's a particular one about Steven Spielberg's use of what he calls the oneer, which is the one shot, the one track shot that takes that can last upwards of three minutes, and he uses that quite a bit in Jaws to um, to help reinforce his story. So I'll uh, I'll link to that particular episode. But the web series is called Every Frame a Painting, and I highly recommend that you guys check that out. It's really cool. I'm going to go look that one up tonight. I've not seen that particular episode, but I, I will echo what you're saying. It is a fantastic series and one of the very, very few web series that I do follow. Um, he has some amazing, amazing ideas, and he just he's a gifted storyteller. The way that he can put things together and... I mean, I guess that's why he's an editor because he's putting things together um, in a great way. Yeah. Go figure. (laughs) So yeah, I highly suggest that you do check that out. Just like Patrick was talking about for next week, we are going to stay in the water, but instead of a vicious shark, we're going to be discussing a cute little animated blue tang fish with a horrible memory as she just keeps swimming, swimming, swimming. Yes. Finding Dory is coming and we can't wait for you to get our real, Hint, hint, reaction. That's like, to a, double, that that's like a double pun, isn't it? Is that, is that a double pun? Does ah. like a lot of points. So you can get that one next Monday from us. Um, we're gonna go see that, and we will. We can't wait to talk about it. I, I, full disclosure, Finding Nemo is my favorite Pixar movie. So yes, I'm going fanboy. Um, I expect to fall. In, I expect to. I expect to love this film. If it's anything less, we might have a very short and very angry and loud podcast. <laughs> which might be kind of fun too but i hope not for that sake no we're gonna do what we always do which is stay positive and keep feeling film bye-bye show me the way to go home i'm tired and i want to go to bed i had a little drink about